Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with baseball columnist and New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Passan. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. Today on the program, I'm joined by a baseball writer and columnist with ESPN and a New York Times bestselling author. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Passant. Jeff, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, I appreciate the invite. I uh, I enjoy all time spent with Boones, and uh, this is going to be no exception. It's pretty special, isn't it? It's uh, like I, 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 we, we were t- we were talking before we started recording a little bit about family and uh, getting to hang out with your family must be such a joy and in such an unpredictable good time because everyone in your family is quick and sarcastic and loves getting off a good zinger. And I imagine the Boone family Thanksgiving uh, is a good time to be had by all. It is. I mean, there's some good debates. It never ends. You know, it never ends bad. I, I, I've never had it. It's starting from when I was a little kid. You know, grandpa was the king of it. I mean, he <laughs> wanted to probe you about everything. Just, <laughs> you know, and, and Aaron and, and me would sit there and, you know, and, and then we'd get on the older guys, you know, dad and grandpa and just kind of go them into to just just play with them. And but make a make them think we were serious and oh was, that uh, which is yeah getting, oh, one, getting one over getting one over on old people is a great joy of life now my kids do that to me you know course, i think yeah. I, I think i think i'm the guy yeah you know, i know everything you can't get anything past me and i have my kids i mean needle me and say stuff just to get a reaction and they're just kind of smirking like he thinks i'm serious yeah i, I mean that's the real- it's like getting older yeah, the reality is I acknowledge and uh, have acknowledged for a while now that my 15-year-old is smarter than me and my 10-year-old is more clever than me. And and the 15-year-old is in debate at school. And so not only is he smarter, but now he's learning like the art of breaking someone down. And he'll be doing it to me without me even recognizing it. And like three quarters of the way through, I'll be like, oh, shit. Like have I, I backed, have I backed <laughs> myself into this corner and what has happened? And, and my 10 year old will just, he'll, he'll set me up for punchlines. He, he actually, he actually got me yesterday uh, when, when he asked who does a song and I said, imagine dragons. And he said, imagine dragging these nuts across your face. And I'm like, first off, <laughs> you're 10 years old, you little shit. Like that's enough. I'm but telling second, you, I cannot believe I cannot believe I fell for that. Yeah, they they do it all the time. I think it's because we're a little bit naive. You think, oh no, they're just our kids. They <laughs> they respect everything we do, and and they wouldn't do that to us. And I I get caught in the same conundrums. It it is funny. It is funny. And and because they're, you know, you you've got to take a step back and just remember when you were a kid. And you knew everything and your parents were morons and they hadn't seen anything. They don't know what's and, and to a certain degree. We don't know what's going on in, in right. school. Like you said, you have a 15 year old. Well, you know what it was like for you in high school. I knew what it was like for me. You know, there were different codes and things going on that probably your mom and dad never, you know, Absolutely. never remembered. But you got to be in that present time. 
You know, it, it transcends to sports, you know, and I've seen that, uh, you know, I'm pretty damn knowledgeable on this game and the ins and outs of this game and what goes on and what what is kind of the code. But I, I'm starting to learn that each generation that comes along. Yeah, it's still generally the same being in a big league clubhouse, being one of those 25, now 26 guys. Yep. But there are subtle differences that you don't know unless you're in those clubhouses and a current player, uh, because it was a little bit, you know, I grew up with, with, with my father and, and tagging along as a little kid in Philly and Anaheim. Mm-hmm. And it was one way then, then yep. our, my clubhouse was a little bit different than dad's. Uh, so it, it's, it's fascinating and it's cool to some degree. Cause it seems like as much as I've, everything in my life has been baseball. Uh, I still have through my kids. Now a son that's playing minor league baseball, there are little differences and, and I learned something, um, you know, he'll bring something up to me because, you know, we have great talks, my son and, and myself about the intricacies of the game. And, yep. and uh, you know, he'll come to me once in a while. I'll go, dad, what do you think about this? You know, I, I usually don't go to him and put my, when he's playing, I leave him alone. When I, when I get a phone call from Jacob, it's a real I try to be father, son, but it's more coach kid. And, and he'll say, Dad, what do you think about this came up and I'm in this situation and, and it's this stage of the game. This is the count. This is the you know, it's the eighth inning. What would you think in that situation? And then we can have a real good dialogue and it's fun. And maybe it's a teaching moment for him, but they happen not too often, but they're always cool. And, and uh, to see what he's thinking, to see what I'm thinking, because little things have changed in the game, little, little nuances. Yeah, it's still the, 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 it's fa- still the game, but that's right. The fa- the foundation doesn't change, right? You still have uh, a pitcher, 60 feet, six inches from home plate. You still have three strikes and you're out. You still have three outs in the inning. Uh, you still have all of these fundamental things about baseball that don't change, but it's the lens through which we view the game. And I'm seeing that myself with my 15 year old, um, you know, he's a freshman in high school this year and he's a pitcher and the knowledge that he has about pitching and, and not see, he, he doesn't have the same knowledge. I think that a 15 year old, a generation ago might've had, I feel like 15 year olds, a generation ago, probably spent more of their emotional and intellectual energy on competing and on strike throwing and on other things that don't involve like spin or don't involve uh, the game theory of when do you throw the high fastball and uh, why do you throw it because it tunnels well with a particular pitch. You know, there are all these elements that, uh, you know, I didn't play high level baseball, but I played enough of it to know the game and I've been around the game long enough where I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of it now. But some of the things that I'll learn uh, about the details of pitching now and what they're being taught, it's mind blowing. And, uh, you know, my kid, because he is my kid, is never going to be the most physically gifted person on the field. So he understands that he needs to have that mental and intellectual edge if he wants to go out there and compete as much as he does. Yeah. And I think a lot of the things now in the game, you know, I'm a purist. Uh, I don't use the term old school because I've adapted to this modern game 
and, yep. and, and I take everything in. I, I think I, I laugh because, you know, we went through a time period a year ago or so where the big debate, especially now in the new age of social media was what are the writ- unwritten rules of baseball? <laughs> and, and I used to laugh. I'd get phone calls from, you know, uh, radio station. What we need your opinion on? What are the unwritten rules? And and I really, you know, I sat down and instead of just answering the question the way that old school type player would ask, would answer the question. Well, in my day, this is what we did, and you know, okay, that's great. But what are unwritten rules? Unwritten rules, or whatever the modern day player and his colleagues and his peers and his opponents, whatever they decide they are. That's so, right. So in my generation, you get caught stealing a sign, you're, you're going to wear one in the neck, you're next at bat. Yep. Or if I catch you, if you come in spikes high, uh, that's noted by my relief pitchers that are out in the bullpen. And, and we will take care of business. Today, maybe it's not necessarily that way. I mean, some of the, you know, and, and you watch it on a daily basis, you're covering it all the time. Uh, the behavior of some of these players, you know, it's just the, the accelerate, the celebrations at first I thought, well, well, this guy's got 16 career big league home runs. How could he behave in that manner? He's got a, a half a year in the big leagues, but I started to kind of think, well, you know what? This isn't my time. When I came up, it was sit in the corner, uh, speak when you're spoken to. Mm-hmm. And when you earn your stripes, we might let you sit in the back of the bus, you know, from the plane to the to the hotel. Yep. Uh, but we earned it. That was my time. But but it's not my time right now. So I, I always no, think not and, whatever and, and these I, players decide, that's what the unwritten rules are. And it doesn't matter what I think or what I don't think. History will will judge each and every one of our generations. My grandfather's generation, he used to tell me things that went on there. I think there's a lot of cool things about back in his day and and riding riding trains and hanging out with the umpires. You know, I, I man, I wish I wish I got to witness some of that. My dad's generation, I was there as a kid, probably my favorite generation, because usually when you're a kid, you appreciate those moments. The best. I loved my time, you know, my time from the 90s and the early 2000s. That was a great generation. And now we're in this generation right now. Some of the things I love, some of the things I'm envious uh, from from a technology standpoint, man, oh. the information these kids have. I, I, I'm kind of envious because I think I was that guy. I was that geek. Give me every piece of information I can have, all the intel I can have. I'll take it all in. I'll decide what I'm going to use and go from there. But. But the, the thought of me, you know, I think about it all the time. These days, you, you know, you get an iPad or a tablet. You've got every you've got that starting pitcher tonight. His last three starts, the last time he faced you, if you want to get into it, a history of at bats with you and just him. I can watch that whole bullpen, what they've done for the last month. I'd sit in my hotel and just study that film all night. And now I'm ready for, say, a four game series in Kansas City. So I'm, I'm envious. A lot of that, I think. Too much information in in the hands of the wrong person can be detrimental, can be dangerous. Uh, But that's for each and every every uh, player to decipher. I I really think the coolest part and and you said it at the top, you know, it's still the game at the core. Mm hmm. And the, what I still enjoy the most is just the cat and mouse, the cat and mouse. It's that pitcher and that hitter, because at the top level and you're talking about tunneling and all that, I love it because, uh, you know, I'll listen to Smolty talk and that's how we pitched. Uh, You listen to the top tier pitchers of my generation of today. There's no different. 
they're still the top tier, the elite guys. And there's a cat and mouse with that hitter. And it's okay. This situation, I don't care what the data says. I don't care if 46% of the time in a two, one count, he's going to throw X against two. What's the situation? Is it to lead off a game is in the bottom of the eighth with a base open and a lefty on deck that all goes into the equation to make, to formulate my approach. You know, I think one I think one of my favorite things about baseball is the fact that the best at bat of a season can come in the fourth inning of a game between two shitty teams between a nondescript pitcher and a 4A guy. Like it doesn't matter how great you are individually, you are still capable of doing absolutely incredible things on a baseball field. And when you look at all of those different elements and factors that you just talked about, that that's that's baseball right there. That is why it is the game of thinking men's games and the idea that. Uh, you know, you can have just a 15 pitch at bat where you have, you know, seven, eight, nine balls fouled off a guy just trying to stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. And, you know, as he keeps staying alive, his confidence is going up and you put yourself in the shoes of the pitcher who's trying to execute and is throwing strikes every time, sometimes quality pitches, maybe strikeout pitches even. And this guy is just fighting them off. That battle, there's nothing like it in sports. And I, I, I watch baseball. I watch random games during the season between two teams that have uh, no business being watched by a large audience because they're not very good in hopes that I'm going to stumble upon that or a great play in center field or, or a ridiculous, you know, backhand in the hole by the shortstop jump throw over to first base. There, there's always something that can happen in a baseball game that will boggle your mind. And that's why we tune in for three hours a night for, you know, 180 days of the year. Without a doubt. Three biggest stories of 2022 for for you. I, I've got, you know, my ideas. What, what are your three biggest? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I mean, we got to start with the World Series winner, right? Like, I, I think the Houston Astros going and uh, I, I think the word redemption is way overused these days um, because what they did in 2017, uh, it is – uh, I suppose it's forgivable, but it certainly should be unforgettable. Uh, but the fact that they have maintained as long as they have this quality of play, uh, that they continue not just to uh, feast off the Altuves and Bregmans, but develop guys like Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker and Framber Valdez and Christian Javier, and that they've put this machine in place. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I, I hate to say that the stats versus scouts debate, which I think, frankly, should have been put to bed a long time ago, was reinforced by the Astros. But the Astros did something different than everyone else. Like the the A's back in the early 2000s, in the heart of the Moneyball era, embraced this idea that we have a lot of knowledge now through uh, both technology as well as our uh, our ability to look at inefficiencies and try and capitalize on them. But the Astros went full bore more than anybody. And uh, the fact that they've been rewarded now with two championships, this past one, hopefully, seemingly, fingers crossed, no questions about it. 
I think that is a big story. Um, I, I don't think this one's probably going to be on your list, but for me, Fernando Tatis Jr. getting suspended for for PEDs, it, it showed a few things. Number one, that they're still around in baseball. And I, I don't think that we have, as a sport, reconciled the idea uh, of where PEDs play a role in the game. Uh, early on when, uh, you know, I was a young baseball writer when Barry Bonds was going for, for 756. And I was fully gung-ho, Bonds is a cheater, and this record stinks, and blah, 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 blah. And, and the more I thought about it, the the older I got, the more perspective I got, uh, I softened on it some. And I softened because uh, of a few reasons. Number one, we simply do not have a real accounting of what baseball is like uh, and uh, what baseball was like back in the 2000s if we try and separate uh, guys who used with guys who didn't because we we don't have the full truth. And I understand sometimes you have to make value judgments without having the full knowledge of a situation. But to try and go and essentially erase history on account of that, uh, I think, is ahistorical and very problematic. Um, B, there's the, the very simple fact that there are a lot of things that are legal that do very similar things to performance enhancing drugs. Um, and listen, it's different. I understand that you're actively choosing to take something, but you're doing so in service of C, which is that the, the competitiveness of professional athletes never fails to astound me. The desire not just to be great, but to be great beyond great, uh, I think speaks to the fact that pro athletes are a different breed than the rest of us. And I'm not putting you guys up on a pedestal. What I'm saying is that as great as your physical ability is, uh, your, your mental ability, your desire to do something that's above and beyond what you think you're capable of, uh, others think you're capable of, uh, anyone thinks anyone is capable of, I think it drives people to, to make decisions that uh, they may regret or, or to be careless. And that's what happened with Fernando Tatis Jr. And of course, number three is Aaron Judge. Um, look, Barry Bonds is the single season home run record holder, the all time home run record holder. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that either of those things is true. And yet watching Aaron Judge do what he did this season was uh, remarkable and such a joy as a baseball fan, because I, I, I'm sure you've talked with Aaron plenty about uh, uh, your brother, Aaron, what. Aaron Judge is like. I think Aaron Judge is a good human being who worked for what he had, put everything into it, and saw results. And I love stories like that. I live to tell stories like that. And Aaron Judge, ultimately, I think, is the best story of 2022. No, they were all on my list. You know, I I, I look at this Astros team. I, the postseason started, and there were two obvious teams to me. It was the Astros, it was the Dodgers. As soon as the Dodgers were eliminated... Yep. And, and I shared this with my brother. I said, they're, they're the elite team. They're, they're yeah. better than you. It's just a fact. It's not to be, you know, it's not. <laughs> I'm, a, no. I'm sure. I'm sure he loved hearing that, by the way. Well, Aaron he, likes he Aaron, knew it. 
Aaron he likes me it. to be candid. You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat with him. Of course, I'm always, you know, and and this has been the tough part of me. I've always respected those Yankees. I had many battles, uh, many different years with that team, especially, you know, that was their heyday. And Absolutely. I got sick of getting beat by them. I got sick of being disappointed in the Bronx, but always had a very healthy respect for the organization, the players, how, how they went about their business. Great players, great teams. Obviously, they won five rings uh, during my big league career. Uh, but I'll be honest with you. I got a tough time liking the Yankees. Now I'm kind of forced to. <laughs> but when Aaron will call, I, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, the Astros, it's not April. In April, it's a different ball game. That Yankee team in April versus that Yankee team hobbling into the postseason. Yeah. Astros are a better team. They were the elite team. That's the great thing about baseball, though is the best team doesn't always win. If that were the case, the Dodgers, the Dodgers would have won the World Series or yeah, would have at least at the least Phil, been there. The, Philly, the Phillies certainly wouldn't have made the World Series. Right. And, and it was cool. I had Tim Salmon on the program about a month ago and he really opened my eyes to something. He said, Booney, in 2002, he said, we were battling all the way down the stretch in, in September. And we're just trying to get into the postseason tournament. They were a wild card that year. I remember it was in that division. They came back and and caught us, the Mariners, who we had a great first half and kind of faltered. And they, and they excelled in the second half. They snuck in the last week of this season. And he said, that year taught me to never underestimate that team that has been playing with a postseason mentality for a month before the postseason even gets there. The teams that win go start to finish and have a healthy lead and really never have anyone pressing them. Uh, they're not in that postseason mode yet. We got to the postseason mode looking at the teams we had to face and go, bring it on because we've been playing postseason games now for a month. Really good point. And then I saw the Phillies doing what they're doing and I thought about that salmon interview. And I said, you know, this is coming to fruition now. This is exactly what he just talked about. A team out of nowhere had to fight claw in that division, especially this year yep. to just get to the postseason and then do what they were doing. And, and I mean, they were a couple, they were close to moving on and, and, and doing the, doing the thing. It didn't, it didn't quite get there, but uh, what a run they had. It was, it was really interesting. Um you, t you touch on Tatis. I, I think this guy, I watch him. And, and if I just have to put my analyst hat on, see what kind of player this is a once, once in a lifetime, once in a generation type talent. Uh, but I also realize that this guy's just a kid. He's yeah. 21. He's 22 years old. He makes decisions. I remember being 21 and 22. You're, you're Superman. You're invincible. Nothing will happen. He knows you're not allowed to ride motorcycles, right? Yep. Well, but he's he's Tatis. He's a Superman. If anything were to happen, he's able to not get hurt because that's how we think as kids. And I, and I don't mean kids in a condescending way. I just mean young players. No, no it's, I mean, he, he's been given three hundred forty million dollars. Right. right. So like he doesn't what? think he doesn't think like a mature, wise, uh, a lot of life uh life experience. You're not making those choices yet. I'll guarantee you, you're going to see and I hope you're going to see a, a completely new, different outlook Tatis when he comes back, because I think what happened was he, he had that injury. He panicked. He thought, wow, I'm not supposed to be riding motorcycles in the Dominican when I, you know, that's that's illegal. I just signed a big deal. I have a big responsibility and I need to be accountable to not only the San Diego Padres, but my teammates, especially. That's what it's all about is the respect 
and, and owning up to your teammates. And when he came back and kind of, you know, pussyfooted around and, and said, well, I was taking this and this ringworm. You know what? Teammates will turn on you in a heartbeat. All they want you to do is be honest with them. Come back, lay it on the line, say, hey, I had this injury. I took this to try to heal so I could cover up the injury. It didn't work. I still had to have surgery. And now all of a sudden I made it worse because now I got caught for doing it. And if he would have done that and, and showed remorse, genuine remorse to his teammates, I think you would have seen a different reaction. The fact that you come back with a story, now your teammates are, are looking at you worse. So my my advice just be honest, especially, That's, is it, especially that with just, your teammates. Isn't that just good advice for life, though? Without a doubt. Like, I was, you know, I, I was never someone who, like, lied or took pride in lying or my ability to tell someone. But I, I also I remember, like, there were times when I would write critical stories where beforehand I would not get in touch with the people who I needed to or, or now I didn't need to like journalistic ethics did not say you have to tell this person this before it's going to print, but it would have been the right thing to do. The, the truth, the truth always wins. Like that's that's the lesson that I think younger people don't understand. And it takes a little while to to learn that. And I try and tell my kids that all the time, like rare is the situation where not telling the truth immediately about something winds up being the right move. I mean, there listen, there are certain situations where where a white lie uh, makes sense to protect someone in a particular moment. And maybe it does that, maybe it doesn't. But in the end, it, you know, if you go to people, look them in the eye and tell them the truth, even if the truth hurts, hopefully they're going to respect you for that as long as you do it in a respectful manner. And I think it goes a really, really long way. And ever since I have tried to embrace that ethos, my life has been much better for it. And you just see, you know, with the scandals through the year, not only in baseball, but all sports. Uh, if you come clean, it, it's a very forgiving society. Absolutely. And when when you play at the top level, especially today with the economic, the way they are in, in all sports, uh, all the top sports, um, there's an accountability. And when you sign that sign that contract, it comes with a ton of money and a ton of perks, uh, but also a ton of accountability if, if you step out of line. And I think knowing that going in, if you mess up, you need to just go to the podium and say, I messed up and I'm a human being and and go play good. That helps too. get who, back. Who, and play who, your got, ass who got who got out of PEDs? I, I hate to keep going back to that, but who got out of PEDs most unscathed was Andy Pettit. Yep. And who, and who is the person who was straight up up front said, I did this. I'm sorry. And, and just apologized off the bat. And it was Andy Pettit. The, these, these two things are not just correlated. They are causative. And if you come out and own up to mistakes, society is a whole lot likelier to forgive you than if you fight them. And it helps if you come back and play really good, too. Yeah, that's, it. that's <laughs> it. Um, Yeah. So the, me and you are, are right there in lockstep on on the biggest stories. Uh, when you mentioned Judge, uh, you know, I watched him all year. And, and the fact that he turned down that contract and, and kind of bet on himself. Oh, yeah. And it, pretty unbelievable that that answer he had to that. I mean, to hit 62, to hit uh, to be right there in the end, battling for that triple crown. What a year. And um, the way he handled himself too, 
the way yep. he handled himself. Classy, Jeter-esque. Yes. Uh, perfect personality. Just a pro. Seems like a good guy. You know, we never know because I, I, I don't know Correct. Aaron Judge. I've never played with Aaron Judge. But from the outside, all the people I've been with through my career and, and my baseball life, uh, I have a pretty good eye for guys that are full of crap and, and guys that aren't. <laughs> uh, we're all full of crap to a certain degree. <laughs> that's that's uh, 101. Uh, but I'll tell you, he, he he handled it with dignity. I mean, he just did all he pushed all the right buttons on top of that. Oh, yeah, I just happened to throw 62 home runs. I don't see him leaving uh, New York. I, I think he'd be crazy. You know, all the benefits that come. It's like Aaron when he was signing his contract. I said, you want to go manage for, uh, you know, any other team or you want to manage for the Yankees? Yeah, it's hot. It's hot in the kitchen there. And people hate you. You know, you, you don't win a World Series. You got to go on a witness protection program where if you can go somewhere else. They'll say, hey, great try. Great season. But I said, you win one championship with the New York Yankees. Legend. That's, that's forever. And you yeah. walk into the biggest city in our country and you will be they will open the gates for you for the rest of your life. I said, there's something to that. And for Aaron Judge uh, to 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 be a star and have that kind of, like I said, Jeter-esque type role now. He's the modern-day Jeter. And to play out his career with the Yankees, I think, the, I think the, uh, the perks of just doing that in New York in pinstripes uh, really outweighs if you could get more money to go play here. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was on uh, the New York, New York podcast with John Dostramski yesterday, and he's a Yankee fan. And he was asking me questions from the perspective of a Yankees fan. And one of them was essentially, um, do you think Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone really care as much as we do? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> no other city, I don't think, you're going to get that question about how much the people who are the stakeholders really care. And I, I understand where that question is coming from because the frustration in New York over not winning the championship for 13 years, which, you know, boo-hoo, like, sorry, I'm from Cleveland. They haven't won since 1948. I don't feel too bad for the Yankees in their last championship in 2009, but uh, there, there are elements to it being in New York that I think would wear, I'm not even going to call them lesser people, that would wear on different people. I don't think it wears, well, no, it does wear on Aaron, but I, I don't think it wears him out. And it does wear on Aaron Judge, uh, but I don't think it wears him out. And in, in fact, I think those things, Aaron Judge, turned into fuel. One of, one of my favorite anecdotes I heard this season, you know, just like pulling back the curtain here as, as a reporter. And you know this because you have fielded thousands upon thousands of questions. All we're ever looking for is a good scene, a good story, something that's going to reveal a little bit of insight into a person and who he or she actually is. And there was a story I was told about how uh, the day that judge turned down the two hundred thirteen and a half million dollar extension. He was in the clubhouse and he was talking with Anthony Rizzo and Rizzo was like something to the effect of, oh, you know, you turned it down. Uh, you know what? Like, what was your thinking? And Judge's response to that was, you don't think I'm worth more? Which which 
gave me a lot of insight into who he is and the confidence that he has in himself and the ability to carry oneself that way in New York, Brett. I mean, that's everything. If you don't have that foundation right there saying, I am good enough to play here, I am good enough to succeed here, you are going to fail. And maybe that's not the reason that guys fail. It could be because of talent. It could be because of something going on in their lives at that moment, at that particular time that just doesn't allow them to be in the best position to succeed. But I'll tell you, starting from that point where you have enough belief in yourself, uh, not just to to believe you're going to succeed, but to turn down 200 plus million dollars, that says a lot about Aaron Judge's character, who he is and what he thinks of himself and his skills. And you back it up like that. It's like, oh. you know, I, I was just thinking, Aaron, and I was happy for him. I mean, he finishes the year and he's just going home going, all right, now what do you got? <laughs> it's a pretty it's a pretty cool spot. The only thing I questioned was that's a lot of money to turn down at the age of 30, because we all yeah. know how each organization, you know, that age 35 and, and the mileage that you put on that body, especially a six, eight frame, uh, you know, those all those analytics uh, about the body are going to start not being in your in your favor as a player. So that's what I thought. If Aaron Judge was 25 years old, I think. Yeah, he's worth way more than that. Yep. Uh, but at playing, you know, next year he's going to play at 31. And I know how they started to get to me. You know, I was 32 years old. And I remember uh, uh, someone in the organization with the Mariners coming to me. And this is my heyday. I'm coming off 140 ribbies. And, you know, I signed my contract. And they said, Brett, we hate to tell you this, but, it, you know, with you play every day and there's a lot of wear and tear on a middle infielder on your body. And our data tells us that at about age 35, uh, you're going to really go downhill. <laughs> and, yep. and I'm sitting there going, what, who does this guy think he's talking to? You know, I train harder than this and I eat good. And <laughs> until you get to 35 and it's, like, <laughs> I remember, I remember watching Robbie Alomar, who was kind of my mentor, not my mentor. I'm sorry. That's the wrong word. The guy I looked to, uh, yep. it was the best, he was the best player at my position for probably a decade. Yep. And I was stepping into that world of, you know, kind of, I was starting to be kind of overtake him in there and I'm going and and I have more respect for, for Robbie and what he did. I mean, what a great player hall of famer, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I remember having a conversation with him. He was 35 years old and he started, he, it's like he fell off a cliff. And I asked him one night, I said, what's wrong? He goes, Booney, I woke up and it seemed like from last year to this year, I'm old. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. Because I'm still, you know, I was two or three years younger than him. I got to 35, 36. I found out exactly who he was talking about. So anyway, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to harp too hard on it. But that's what no, I was. No, but that's a, that, but that's a, that's a reality. There is but one thing in sports that is undefeated, and it's age. Without age, a doubt. Age always catches up to you, and you just hope you can slow it down long enough to go out on your terms. But the the... It's not even analytics as much as history tells us that guys who are 38, 39, 40 just are not what they used to be. And it's part of, you know, if, if there's a story that I left out um, and I'm regretting now and, and probably a bigger story than Tatis, it's Albert Pujols and getting to getting to. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. I just saw Albert at a golf tournament. Unbelievable. Because I was there at the beginning in 2001 where he came on the scene. Yeah. And no one, my son told me, he said, hey, is Albert going to hit 
seven, get 700. I said, this year at, at 40, whatever he is, I said, no chance. And he goes, I don't know. I got a weird feeling that he might. And, and he started playing like a 25 year old Albert Pujols. And I'm looking around, go, what is going on here? It's like <laughs> divine intervention. All of a sudden you're in your prime. I'm like, you might want to play another year. No one would have blamed him for coming back. But is it not true that the best stories in sports are the ones where guys go out on top? And- Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And we just had this. I, I was just talking to another player that that's close to Albert. I think he played with. I forget who it was. But we were just talking about it. And I said, could you imagine? Could you imagine walking away about, after putting up that? last two months of the season performance and you're still playing at that level. And then I thought about all the things, you know, there was a lot of fanfare down and now all of a sudden, if you come back as a player and now you're a, you're a year older in spring training and things aren't going great. And you're right. going, what did I just do? The, the perfect world would be, it would almost, <laughs> it would almost have to be like the St. Louis Cardinals publicly begged you to come back. Yes. And then if you if you had you still have the desire to play, then do it. Anything short of that, I, I think his numbers are so ridiculous. Those are those numbers, you know, that you check. You you check Pete Rose's numbers and you check uh, Hank Aaron's numbers and you start reading them and you just go, this is ridiculous. And, and now you can put Albert in that breath. He's the same. You look at his numbers and you go, this is absurd. Twenty something hundred ribbies. Are you kidding me? Seven hundred homers. Five hundred ridiculous. He's at seven hundred. It's just absurd. I, I what I appreciated most about it, I think, was the humility that he showed in the end. He had every right in the world to come back after that. But let's be honest. Coming back and thinking that you're going to be able to replicate that is a very ego-driven thing. And Albert Pujols was humble enough to say, you know what? I got my storybook. I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. I'm going to walk away right now feeling like I was still on top. And, And even though all of those years in Anaheim were a struggle and were quite literally painful because his body was breaking down over that whole time. He was able to find something in the end that allowed him to perform, not like he was in his prime, because prime Pujols is, you know, one of the five best right-handed hitters in history, but to be an extremely productive player on a playoff team, and, and not just any playoff team, but the city where he had his greatest moments. It, it, it could not have been a better ending for Albert Pujols. And, uh, you know, you just have to be happy for him that, uh, he he got that gift because that's what it is. It's a gift. It's a gift to be able to go out on your own terms, feeling great about yourself and not like the game passed you by or it was no longer a place where you belonged. Without a doubt. Uh, you've been pretty critical of uh, Hall of Fame voting. Mm. What's your take on it? My my issue because I've got I've got some I've got some takes, yeah. <laughs> but I want to hear yours. Well, my my issue with Hall of Fame voting is, you know, it's twofold. Number one, I think it's direction that the Hall of Fame has given. Um, There was a letter written by Joe Morgan uh, when when he was still alive because you don't write letters when you've died. That's I probably could have said that a little more eloquently. There was a letter written by Joe Morgan that essentially said, Uh, the Hall of Fame is a place where only the best should be. And 
people who used PEDs cheated the game. And and I understand. Listen, I get that perspective. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I get where people have come from. My issue was that this was sent out by the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame had refused up until that point to take any sort of stance on PED users. And that left it in the hands of uh, Baseball Writers Association. And I think the Baseball Writers Association, uh, the, the moral judgments that are put down by a number of writers, and I think it's fewer these days than in the past, but the moral judgments that are put down, I just don't think have a, a ton of logic to them. Uh, I understand the frustration that baseball fans have wondering about the records because records in baseball are just such an enormous part of the game, right? They're, they're everything. Baseball is a numbers based game and we can say who was a great player based on his numbers, who was a good player, who was below average and who frankly didn't belong in the big leagues just based on performance. Um, And, and because of those logical gaps, I think we forget what the Hall of Fame is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this shining beacon on a hill in a tiny burg in upstate New York. It's a museum that celebrates the best players who have played and the history of the game. And I'm sorry, but the history of the game is an ugly thing. It was ugly long before steroids. It will be ugly long after steroids. But by not rewarding someone like Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, who were undoubtedly the best at their positions during their generations. And you can argue in Bonds's case that he was the best hitter ever. And you can argue because of the competition that Clemens faced, he was, if not the best pitchers, certainly among the five best. And the fact that neither of them is in the hall of fame, I think is a shame and the hall of fame is worse for it. I agree with you. You know, Bonds is the best, is the best hitter by far, by far. And I played with a lot and against a lot of unbelievable players. But and I think if you took a if you took a uh, a poll from, say, 1985 to 2005 to every single big league player that played said, who's the best hitter you ever saw? I guarantee you that poll come back. Ninety eight percent. It's not even close. I mean, Barry Bonds, he was so much better than the second best player. <laughs> he really was. You know, I was sitting out. I remember playing against him and, uh, you know, I'm having a year and I'm looking at my numbers. I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. I hit 35 homers. I'm hitting three something and I got a hundred and whatever RBIs. And I'm looking at Barry Bonds in the box playing second base yep. and just talking to myself going, I'm not even, I can't even carry his bats out for batting practice. <laughs> That's how much better he is than me. It's like, this guy's playing slow pitch softball. The rest of us are playing big league baseball. He was that good. But to your point, I do have a problem with the moral, taking the moral high ground in, oh, all of a sudden we're going to play God on who did and who didn't do it. Yeah, some cases are pretty, you know, take logic and say, well, yeah, he looks like he did it. Some guys, there were so many pitchers that that didn't train. Oh. They're not going to look like it's not magic. It, they're not going to just look like Jose Canseco if they if they don't train like Jose Canseco. So I, I find like certain guys that are that have a vote want to say, well, look at this guy. He did it the right way. Not necessarily because you know that he did it the right way. It's that you want to think he did it. Correct. The right way. And Correct. that drives me crazy because none of us know believe me 
in the 90s and the 2000s, I was pretty naive in the 90s to it. It's just I was oblivious to it. 2000s, I saw a little bit of it, but it's like that was a speakeasy thing. Nobody talks about it. No players, no teammates talk about it. That is taboo. So it's everything is really under the radar. And I just have a problem at this stage of people picking and choosing. Well, he did it. He did, he did it because he hit home runs. It has nothing to do with home runs. He did it because he doesn't hit home runs. So he must not have done it. It has nothing to do with that. Yep. I think you either say everybody took it. Everybody didn't take it. We base it on who is the best players of that generation who dominated their position. And you go from there. Because if you start saying, oh, I think he did, but but he might have been. I don't think he did, but I like him. So I, I'm going to vote for him. I think it just gets too skewed. And now we're sitting in this particular predicament where Barry Bonds and, and Clemens are not in the Hall of Fame. And it's ridiculous that you you pointed out, you know, Clemens is a top five pitcher, not only of his generation, probably all time. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's silly. So I'm with you on the, the NFL does it a little bit differently. They meet in a committee. They debate the issues. Do you think that's a better format or do you think the format, the way MLB sets it up is is uh, superior? You know, I'm always for more people voting because I feel like the more people you have and the more opinions you have on a particular issue, whether it's who belongs in the Baseball Hall of Fame or who belongs, you know, in the White House uh, is better. You're going to have a more representative sample at that point. Uh, But at the same time, there's something to be said for expertise. And if you put 32 people in a room and have them debate and and all 32 of these people have been around and take this extremely seriously, you weed out some of the more problematic votes. And uh, I, I think also with the Baseball Writers Association, you, you can argue that the expertise comes from 10 years of covering baseball, which is the, the low end threshold. But there are voters for the Hall of Fame right now who do not cover baseball and have not covered baseball. And some of them are editors at newspapers and they're editors uh, who are smarter and understand more about baseball than some of the writers do. Uh, But there are editors who absolutely do not deserve a vote because they just, they don't get the game quite the same. So I, I hate to, you know, offer both sides without an answer. I think both are imperfect and we have to acknowledge and embrace the imperfection and there's a backstop in place for that and that's the the committees that the national baseball hall of fame has and on december 4th we are going to learn if barry bonds got in the hall of fame as voted by i think the committee is going to be made up half of hall of famers uh and and a quarter executives and a quarter writers you know some some sort of breakdown similar to that and there are going to be 16 people and Twelve of them have to vote for guys. Barry Bonds is going to be on the ballot. Roger Clemens is going to be on the ballot. Uh, Fred McGriff, I think, has a very good chance of getting in. 493 home runs, uh, played gold glove caliber defense at first base. Uh, you know, one of the one of the best hitters of his generation. And so I think he's got a pretty solid chance of getting in there. There are going to be. I I would venture to say there will be multiple Hall of Famers voted in. And as someone who, when he did vote voted every year for Bonds and Clemens. I I hope the two of them get in because to me, it offers an opportunity to finally have an honest discussion about this, right? Like what does Barry Bonds's plaque say? It talks about PED use because it has to. It, it, that's part of his legacy. 
His legacy is 762 home runs. His legacy is 73 home runs in a single season. But his legacy is also that he was uh, admitted to using performance-enhancing drugs in the prime of his career. And his career ended short because of that. Because I'll tell you, if you look at Barry Bonds' numbers, uh, they really never waned all that much. I mean, it's unbelievable to me. At 42 years old, Barry Bonds... Had a 480 on base percentage, walked 132 times and struck out 54. That's ridiculous that he was still able to do that, to put fear into the hearts of pitchers, that he got 43 intentional walks at 42 years old. It's wild to me. And to have him not be in the Hall of Fame next to the players of his caliber, I think is a real shame. It's it is remarkable. You're bringing up those numbers. I remember he had more. He reached base more than at bats in a particular year. I forget what year that was. He had like he reached base 369 times and had 364 (laughs) actual at bats. Think about that for a second. One year, he was like a 608 uh, on base percentage. Six. Oh, that's like little league stuff. It's ridiculous. I mean, you know, we 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 marvel at his 2001 season, you know, 73 home runs, 1379 OPS in 2004. He walked 232 times and struck out 41. He was intentionally walked, Brett, 120 times. It's a joke. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't quite uh, more times on base than at bats. It was 200 or 361 times on base in 373 at bats, but it was pretty damn close. And it's, you know, I, I love, you know, I've, I've told this story a lot, but I mean, the, the thing I remember about Barry, because me and Barry had some, I, I, not necessarily bad blood, but we, I, we didn't like each other that much in the beginning. And I remember he, we intentionally walked him in the ninth inning with a one run lead to lead off the inning. <laughs> we put him on base. <laughs> and I, I've never seen that before, right? He steals yep. second base. Of course, he's going to steal. Yep. And I think Kent's hitting behind him at the time. I didn't like Barry talking to Barry. I, I didn't like any guys I played against. I always wanted to, to hate you for three hours a night. But I went over to Barry and I kind of I had to say it. I said, Barry, I said, I, I got to tell you, I've seen a lot of shit. That's impressive right there. And you know what he said? He took his helmet off and kind of looked at me. He goes, Booney. I'd have done the same damn thing. <laughs> and I looked at him and Jeff, I didn't have an answer for him. I kind of looked at him like, man, it must be cool to be able to say that and me not to have a comeback. I had nothing to say. He was that good. But uh, yeah, pretty cool. All right. You grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Went to, I don't know how to pronounce it. Solon High. Solon High. What, what was, uh, what was a little Jeff? Uh, passing like what what were you like what'd you want to do what do you want to do when you grew up as they say my mom sent me a couple pictures a few days ago uh one of them was me uh wearing a pair of like radio dj headphones uh my father did sports talk radio on the weekends in cleveland so i you know i spent uh, i spent enough time around the industry to know hey this is fun Like I, when I was really young, I wanted to be a doctor, but then I realized that, uh, I, I didn't like blood very much. So I, I put the kibosh on that. And, and the other picture was of me 
on my linoleum floor in my kitchen with the Sunday newspaper spread out and me looking at not just box scores, but the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where my dad also worked always on Sunday, printed like the batting averages and leaders for both the American and National Leagues and the ERA leaders. And I would just pour through that stuff every Sunday like a junkie. So, uh, I mean, I was I was nine, ten years old in these photos, maybe just a little dork wearing like glasses that were way too big for his head. And nothing has changed. Like I'm the same guy that I was when I was nine years old. I just love this shit. And uh, it's it's great. And I'm thankful every day I get to do this because every day is different. There is always something to learn. There is always something to chase. There is always something to be involved with. And uh, I have the luckiest life there is. Went to Syracuse, uh, Syracuse University. Uh, and is it true? First thing you started covering was Fresno State basketball. That is the truth. Yeah. Uh, I got I got hired um, I had interned at the Washington Post. I was told by my boss there that uh, he did not think I was cut out for daily journalism. So I did not get a, a job offer to stick around there. And I had two offers. I could have either gone and covered high schools in Newport News, Virginia, or gone to Fresno, California. And it was supposed to be like a general assignment job. You know, I would do backup Fresno State football. I would go cover the NFL on Sundays. I would do some baseball in the spring, but uh, Eric Prisbell, who was our Fresno State beat writer at the time, was working on a story about academic fraud uh, on the basketball team under Jerry Tarkanian. And uh, he couldn't do that investigation and cover the team at the same time, didn't have the bandwidth for that. So I got put on Fresno State basketball uh, in my first year. And it was it was an eye-opening experience, certainly. I, I love college basketball. I love college basketball like your brother loves USC football. I think college basketball is the coolest game to cover just in terms of atmosphere and excitement. It's like, I don't, have you spent any time on college campuses recently? I don't know if like the Princeton campus was uh, – quite as quite as energetic but i i say this because i was uh, you know my my in-laws uh my my wife's sister and her husband live in hanover new hampshire uh, uh like right next to the dartmouth campus and we spent a couple weeks there and there's just a really good energy in college towns i just love like you know, it, it's full of promise, right? It's full of people who have their entire lives ahead of them and are trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do and what their priorities are. And because of that, I just think college campuses have great energies. And you feel that at college basketball games as much as anything. I know like an SEC football game, you know, I've watched a, a game at LSU and I've watched uh, games at the Rose Bowl. Uh, but college basketball, the intimacy of the game, it's awesome. And getting to cover that for a couple of years was just such a, it, it, it brought a lot of perspective to me and, and really reinforced that I had chosen the right thing to do. Yeah. Recently, uh, oh man, Princeton, I was there a couple of years ago when JQ was a, was a, uh, senior. I, I, I love the guy, you know what it makes you do? It makes you realize how old you're getting yes I'm, it does I'm, I'm actually going saturday i'm taking dad and jake and we're headed up to uh sc notre dame so oh. I, I i usually go to one 
SC game, you know, that's my alma mater. And I usually go to one SC and usually I don't try to put out the, the staff up there and say, yeah, I need three field passes and three tickets for, for Notre Dame SC when SC is having a really good year. But this year it just fell on it. And I, I called up, I said, Hey, could you, the Boons want to come up? And they said, yeah, come on up. So I'm looking forward to that. But, uh, very cool. Isn't it, isn't it isn't it really cool getting to do things like that with your family? That's one thing that yeah. I've I've grown to appreciate. You know, I I live in Kansas City now and uh we have a once in a lifetime quarterback here. And and if you're a football fan at all, uh, this goes for anyone. Go see Patrick Mahomes live just once. He is the worth the price of admission guy in. I, I'm not just going to say in the NFL. I feel like in sports. And, uh, you know, I, I realized that my kid's a freshman this year and a huge football fan and very knowledgeable about the sport and getting the opportunity to go to games with your children uh, or with your father is is a special thing that we have. It's you know, sports ties us together for a lot of reasons, but I think the heart of those reasons is is family and fandom. Um, you know, getting to getting to take in something like that with the people you truly love and getting to have some stakes in it just by being vulnerable. Be, being a sports fan is about vulnerability. You have to acknowledge that the reality is your team's probably going to lose, right? You're, you're probably not going to win the championship any given year, and it's going to be heartbreaking, and you're going to feel like shit afterward, but uh, that, that's part of it. That's the, that's the Faustian bargain that sports fans make. And uh, I, I said, you know, I have a finite amount of time before this child leaves the house. Uh, I better go make memories with him. And what better memories there to make than going and watching Patrick Mahomes? Yeah, pretty awesome. Uh, 2004, you started uh, started covering baseball, Kansas City Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, 06 to 18, you worked for uh, Yahoo. It's growing up, you know, you covered the hoops now. You're obviously a football fan. Is baseball, was that always your passion? I loved baseball because of what it is more than what it's not. You can focus on all of the things that are bad about baseball or that could be improved about the game. Um, but I try not to. That that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be critical of it. Um, but I, I think that the things baseball has – may not resonate as much with uh, the current younger generation or even the generation uh, that's in its 20s now. But it, it's what speaks to me. It, it's, you know, it, it is the national pastime to me. I understand that football is a national pastime now. Like the NFL, it, it, you know, people, people run their lives around team sometimes and you just don't see that with baseball as much these days but uh, i love the fact that the baseball season is one giant story and it's a story that's told over 162 chapters and it's a story that's reinforced over a month in october where the games are of the highest stakes that you can imagine. And to me, someone who sees the world in story, 
baseball is the best sport to write about, bar none. No question about it. Just because of, of those elements that are there and the fact that we have more access than just about anyone. And I, I hope, you know, I hope people recognize the inside the game and out, particularly the the importance of access to telling those stories uh, as as much as we want to say social media can uh, can tell us who someone is. Uh, everyone on social media is not their actual self. You know, I'm I'm much more of a smarmy asshole on Twitter than I am in real life, I think. And I, I, I hope people see it and can smile at it and laugh at it and know that there's never anything um, never anything personal. Uh, and, and if it does get personal, I own up to my mistakes and apologize for them because uh, I, I never want to be someone who's seen as bringing negativity into the world, but it's also a different version of who you are. And I think what reporters can do is bring an unbiased, and at least I certainly try to be bring an unbiased perspective. And man, uh, that unbiased perspective is vital to telling the real story of what the game is. 2019, uh, you joined ESPN to current, just signed a four-year deal. Um, winter meetings, take me mm-hmm. through your day at the winter meetings. You're kind of the guy now. You know, you're the guy that people go to. Uh, you're following kind of in the foot. And tell me if I'm, I'm accurate on this. The Peter Gammons, Buster Olney's, the Pedro Gomez's. Um, Take me through a day just at the winter meeting. What do you do? You get up and what are you doing? I, let's not forget Ken Rosenthal. Who Ken I Rosenthal. Think, yeah, I, I think Ken's still the guy. I appreciate you saying that, but uh, Ken's Ken has been such a great uh, mentor standard, really. Um, he, do, he just does things right. Um, he's smart about how he approaches stories. He doesn't overplay things. He doesn't get involved in the little, you know, uh, inching stories ahead at a time, you know, one inch at a time, just in order to, to satiate the masses who may not know any better that these things are very fluid and the fluidity is part of what's interesting to them. So I, I think Ken is, Ken, Ken's still the guy, um, but winter meetings, I, I loathed the winter meetings for a long time. I mean, I because I, I wasn't breaking news early in my career and I kind of sucked at it. And it just, you know, there, there are those places in your life where you just don't feel comfortable or don't feel right. That was the winter meetings for me. That, that's changed a little bit. And, and I appreciate how that's changed because I'm going into the winter meetings this year, which by the way, I think are going to be bonkers. I think a lot, you know, it's been a slow start to free agency. I think it's really going to pick up around the winter meetings and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think you're going to see some big names coming off the board there or, or right around that time. But those days that honestly, they're a lot like any other day for me, just with more interaction with people. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be up at seven. I'll look at my phone. I'll send out a bunch of texts. 
uh, whether it's to see if I can meet up with people or uh, try and figure out like when the, you know, when something is going to be happening. And, uh, you know, I'll walk around the lobby, run into people I haven't seen for a while, chat them up, see what they're hearing. Uh, I'll go meet with some people in suites. I mean, I'm just honestly, the winter meetings are exhausting because it's just a lot of talking. It's just a lot of bullshitting with people and, and trying to figure out what's actually going on in the sport and balancing. I mean, there are 200 free agents right now, and my duty is to keep track of all of them. And so uh, I probably get to bed, you know, I'll go to the bar late at night and hang out and have a, a drink or two with people and catch up with them. And uh, I'll probably go to bed about three o'clock in the morning. So I, I, you know, I'm usually operating at the winter meetings on two, three, four hours sleep. And it's, uh, by the end I'm, I'm exhausted. Like it's, it's been a lot. And so I, as, as much as I want there to be action right now, I kind of appreciate that there isn't, if only because there is no downtime in this sport. There, there is no downtime on the calendar. Like I'm going straight from the World Series to the GM meetings. Free agency is starting. There are trades that are happening. And by the end of free agency, spring training starting right back up. If I walk around, you know, you're always going to have, unlike the the, the players, um, there's young kids walking around. You ever have kids come up to you now and, and recognize you? Maybe a young uh, Jeff Passan, this is what they want to do and ask you questions. If they do, what's your advice to them? I tell them to piss off. No, I'm just kidding. Wow. Um, you're one of the, you're one of those guys. I, you know what? It's, it's important to me as much as I can. I, you know, one, one thing in my life that I've never been great at is recognizing that there are only 24 hours in a day. It's why I don't sleep very much. And, and thankfully my body has held up to this point. Um, but I, I understand that uh, there's a responsibility, I think, to, to make sure that the next generation is as excited about this job as I always have been there's, you know, there have been points when I get beaten on stories, I, I I'm, I'm generally speaking, I have a pretty good disposition and, and I'm very, very thankful for that and very lucky to have it in that I just, you know, I don't get down very much. I don't get gloomy very much. I understand that sometimes you're going to lose and sometimes you're going to get beaten and that sitting and dwelling on that is is counterproductive it's a waste of time you just i don't have enough time to be angry at myself what i have time for is to try and break down where i failed why i failed and how i'm not going to fail next time and i i think that goes a really long way to maintaining that kind of attitude that you need to have i i understand like yeah people do come up to me all the time it's very weird and it takes some adjusting to, but uh, I get recognized and I always try to smile and be kind and thoughtful and listen to people, take pictures if they want. It's never an imposition because I'm in a place right now where I never imagined being. Like the fact that people of a younger generation look up to me and what I do, it's it's silly. But 
it's a fact. And so I try and be as helpful as I can. And I try and talk with young reporters or respond to DMs that I get. And and I'm not, uh, I don't do it hundred percent of the time. I, like I, the balance that I have in prioritizing work versus family uh, and helping people out and all those things, I struggle with that. It's my biggest struggle, no question about it. It's trying to figure out how do I ration out my time so that the things that matter to me most are where I put the most of my time. And that tends to be almost universally family and work. And sometimes family gets lost in that and I need to recalibrate. I need to say, okay, get your shit together because at the end of the day, uh, you know, a job is just a job. But family, like if you're not there, that's going to chase you for the rest of your life. And maybe it makes me a worse reporter, but it makes me a better human being. And at the end of the day, when I look in the mirror, that's the most important thing to me. How does my family look at me? What do they think of me? And can I balance that and be a good father, be a good husband while still being a great reporter? It is a balancing act. Um as a reporter, okay, you're going to have your guy, and and everybody does. It's a human. It's the the human condition. You're going to have guys you love covering, players you love, and players that kind of I don't like him for that particular reason. When you've got to to be objective, you've got to write about these guys. Objective. Is it tough when you've got to write a tough uh, piece on someone you really like versus writing writing it someone you don't like? Yeah, it's really tough. But my listen, my my duty as a reporter ultimately is to the truth. Right. And sometimes the truth is ugly and sometimes it's problematic for people of whom you've grown fond. I mean, I'd be lying if I said there weren't people in the game who I like. You spend enough time around them. And if you share common interests with them, you're you're naturally going to grow to like them. But I also think that they understand that my job sometimes is going to call for that. And that's where, you know, that's where we get back to the the honesty. If you're upfront with people beforehand, they may not appreciate what you're doing. They may hold it against you, which is totally fair, which is totally their right to do so. But at least they'll understand that you're trying to do it in the most professional way possible. Like being a pro is a real thing, man. And and that's the case, whether it's inside of a clubhouse on the field or in my case, as a reporter, I, I, I never want somebody to say I got blindsided by this because I think that's unfair. It goes back, you know, I don't remember what year this was. I think it was in the late 2000s. Orlando Hudson, contemporary years, really good second baseman guy could fucking pick it. Uh, Orlando Hudson, it was the year. Do you remember Jermaine Dye had a really good year and then couldn't get signed the next offseason? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking with Orlando Hudson about that. And uh, he was talking about how black players do not have, uh, 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 you know, it feels like sometimes they don't have a place in baseball. And I didn't have a good relationship with Orlando Hudson. I didn't have a bad relationship either. I really had no relationship with him, but I happened to ask him the the questions that, you know, triggered something. And I rushed back up and I wrote the story and I sent it in and he got killed 
by a lot of people because uh, the the subject of race does that. It brings out the worst in us a lot of times. And I, I regretted that, you know, as, as years went by, I really regretted that I didn't let it breathe for the rest of the game and then go back to him afterward and say, hey, you know what the consequences of this might be? Are you comfortable doing this? I don't want to ever catch anybody at his or her worst moment or uh, when they're emotional saying something that could come back. That just feels gotcha to me. It doesn't feel organic. Um, it, It feels like that's what why reporters sometimes get a bad name among players because they're seen as someone who's just trying to get a headline or write a story. No, that that's not the sort of journalist I want to be. I want to tell the real story of the game. And if the real story of the game can be told through Orlando Hudson doing this, when he's in the right state of mind, when he's not emotional, when, uh, you know, when he feels good and comfortable about what the recourse is going to be, that to me is the ideal situation. Um, and, and I've tried to do that uh, over time. And I, I don't think anybody would say that I'm, uh, well, maybe Astros fans, uh, but I don't think that anybody aside from them would, would look at me and say I'm biased or unfair. No, I, I think I'm just somebody who has been around this game for a long time, uh, who knows a little something. I certainly don't know everything or anywhere close to it, but I know a little something. And in that perspective, that institutional knowledge goes a really long way, I think, in helping tell the story of what Major League Baseball is in 2022 going into 2023. And I thought the relationship, and I always had a really good relationship with the press and, and writers and the beat writers, especially the guys that that covered my team all the time. We had, you know, I had my personality. They knew what my personality was. Yep. I would test guys. You know, I'd go to a place, I'd see a new guy and I'd test him, see how he was. You know, and I might give him a hard time and see how he'd react to that. Yep. But you, you you make a great point about getting emotional, getting at the wrong time after you're around for a while and you got a little experience and you know the guys and I go to New York and I know the reporters there. They know my personality. They know when I say something off the cuff, that's not something that Brett thinks he's just he's going there. And I always appreciated the relationship. And a few times, like you mentioned, I, I kind of said, wow, I didn't expect him to write that. You know, I was kind of kidding and it was right. You caught me at a bad time, but that was pretty rare for me. I always I I knew what I signed up for. Uh, I knew that this is a job that when I don't play good, uh, I'm going to be critiqued. Yes. And I was okay with that. As long as you do it, don't don't do it in a in a sinister backhanded way. As long it critique the heck out of me, but do it with class. And, and I think you summed it up. That word be a pro because yeah. I can I can handle it. I know what I'm making. I know what the, the you know, I know what my salary is as a, in line with everybody else's salary on this team. I know what I'm expected to do. I know what this team, this city, this organization expects me to do when I'm not doing my job. I expect to be criticized. I expect it uh, to be, hey, Booney needs to play better. That's part of it because I know the flip side. When I'm playing great, 
wow, I'm put on this pedestal and, and I can't get enough praise. So there's that other side to it. And I think as pros, we need to expect that. But I always tried to have that relationship with with the press is I signed up for, you know, when you see players uh, that that shy away and don't want to talk to the press, I think if you're a main guy in a room on a team, you're one of the main guys, you kind of owe it to you got to come out good times, bad times, indifferent and talk to the press. Some days you're, you're looking, go, man, I don't want to go ask him this question. I'm tired. I've had a long day, but that's your job. I, as I, as I matured as a player and as, as I got more experience, I empathize with that. I thought he doesn't want to ask me this question. That's his job. He's got to do it. He wants to go home just like I want to go home right now. So let's do this as cordial as we can get it over with. Hopefully he doesn't make me look too bad. Uh, and we'll move on to a brighter day when, when we've got a great question that he's going to ask me. You know, I love those questions. How does it feel to be as hot as you are right now, Booney? Oh, I love that. <laughs> you know what? Why don't you pull up a chair and we'll talk for about an hour and a half. <laughs> I mean, but that's, the, that's and, not and, always, though. No, it's not. And listen, I wish everybody had your perspective. I, I have grown to understand that there are just some guys who are not comfortable dealing with us. And that that's the like that's the reality people are different and they respond to things differently and the more we acknowledge as reporters that you guys are not robots you guys are not superhuman in every way possible including the ability to deal with us handle our questions offer insight the fact that there are going to be days when some guys just don't want to talk like all of that is okay. Thankfully, there are 26 guys in a clubhouse and, and a manager and seven or eight coaches and clubhouse attendants and front office people and any number from whom you can learn. And if there happens to be one guy, who even, even who's a star in a clubhouse who just isn't at a point in his life and maybe he never gets there, but isn't it a point in his life where he's comfortable talking with us, then, oh, well, like there, there are a bunch of others who can talk about him and you can learn just as much. Well, maybe not just as much, but close to just as much from others about the guy. And in some cases, actually more, you know, some guys are going to be reticent to, to say certain things or tell certain stories about themselves where they they wind up the hero. Maybe they're shy about it, but someone else damn sure will tell you about that. And that's the you know, the, the key to being a reporter is asking the right questions to people who trust you, right? It's it's knowing what the story is at any particular time and being able to have those with the right insight tell it to you. Because then if, if the people trust you, uh, whether it's a player, a coach, a manager, whoever it is, if they trust you to go out and tell a story the right way, they will be more open with you. And the only way to get them to trust you is to convince them through your actions, right? It's to to be a good person, to be honest, to to earn that from them. The same way you do in your life, whether it's in business relationships or personal relationships, all it is is relationships. And if people trust you to do things like a pro, they're going to treat you like one. I think, yeah, you know, I I looked at it from a from a. Uh, the press, I said, you know, I've got two choices. I can be that guy that doesn't talk to him, doesn't have a relationship. But I looked at the press like umpires. 
Yeah. Like, you know what? I got to live with these guys. Yeah. <laughs> they got to live with me. My good, my bad, my indifferent. <laughs> I had an unbelievable relationship with every umpire and my, you know, some days, depending on who the guy was, I might come out to second base. He's a second base umpire. And I, oh, I used to do it with Joe West. I'd say, what's up, fat ass? How we doing? <laughs> ah, Booney, I see you haven't gotten any tall. That's our way of saying, hey, Joe, how you doing? What's up, Booney? I felt like it was easier, made my life easier to have a good relationship with these umpires than to be that guy that doesn't like umpires or he's going to be behind home plate in two days. How, how long did it take you to call him fat ass? How many years? Oh, did you years. Put years. In the probably, ten, probably ten. Probably ten. Yeah. And, and, and that's and, and that's that's the thing. You know, uh, as I have gotten older, one thing I've grown extremely appreciative of is people who have feel. And and for those who who may not know what that word means, feel is essentially your ability to go into any situation and read the room and understand what the dynamics are, what a person wants to hear, needs to hear, is willing to take and and to not get out over your skis by doing too much or to undersell things and be meek by doing too little, but to really get social dynamics. And you know what? Uh, there may have been somebody in your position who called Joe West a fat ass the first year he met him. That person doesn't have feel. And you got to learn from that. And that's recalibrate. that's a lack of self-awareness. Yeah, it's exactly. That's well, exactly, it's, well. A, it's, a, it's like that seventh grader. You know, you're in seventh grade and you've got that ability that the teacher really likes you to a point. You've got to know when that teacher doesn't think you're cute anymore. That's right. And that's the time where we back off the, the, that acute ability to avoid detention, to push it right to the edge, but not to go overboard. I tried to do that with umpires. I did that with the press. Yeah. And, and I developed that rapport. I, I had a lot of the guys in Seattle, my years in Seattle's, and we had that. You know, the, the way we greeted each other was from an outsider that didn't know what was going on. Wow. I can't believe they talk that way to each other. No, <laughs> it, it was endearing. It, it, that means I like you. If yeah. I don't say that to you, you might want to think, oh, wait a minute. He doesn't like me. But I, I, I decided to embrace it that way. And I always got along with them. And, and you know what I found, Jeff, in the long run was they respected that because let's be honest, when we're players, uh, my time in Seattle, I took on a, a persona of the boon and I was this and it was yep. it was more sticky than anything else. You know, I had that reputation of always being a brash, cocky yep. as I got older and, you know, I had good years. I had some really tough years, some real humbling times uh, in my time in Seattle. I had some MVP caliber years, but as much as I played to the press, when the cameras weren't rolling and no one was around, I had been through enough in my life. I'd been humbled enough that, man, I really appreciated the good times and how hard this game is at the highest level. I wasn't that cocky. That was more of a shtick. That was more of a persona. But I found that dealing, take, hitting it head on and being there for the press, like I said, good game. They expected they were coming to my locker, especially yep. in those Seattle years. It was every day. Good, bad, and different. And I always had an answer for them. But by being that way and embracing it, you know, they also had, I could come to them sometimes once in a while. If I was just beat down, tough run, tough run personally, tough run for the team. I, I could go to each of those individuals. I said, guys, can you, can you give me a day today? It just, yep. and, and you know what? They'd look at me, they go, Booney, 
you answer our, the bell every day. Of course, we'll give you a day to day. And I, I felt like life's a lot easier going about it that way than the opposite, than to just hide and go away. Because you, you might get I had a few less than flattering stories written about me in my career. Uh, but I'll tell you, I think if I didn't embrace the press the way I did, I think there would have been a lot more of them. Uh, so, there, so there, there is no question about that. And it, and it gets back to what you were talking about, like writing critical things of people who you admire because of how they carry themselves, because of who they are. That That's a difficult thing to do. And and in a situation like that, like the threshold I have, I always just ask myself, if you're not writing this right now, is it a dereliction of duty? Like, is this necessary? And and I think part of that, I think the, the consequence of that is actually a positive. I think that readers now know that if I'm going full tilt on something, it's for a reason. I don't just shoot from the hip. Right. I don't just talk shit to talk shit. I don't have a hot take to have a hot take. That's just not it's not where I operate and it's not what I'm comfortable doing. Uh, And I think it has more impact accordingly that if I do uh, empty both barrels, it was for a reason. This offseason. Who's got to make some moves? Can (laughs) Can the Astros repeat? Uh, yeah, the Astros can repeat. Um, I think it's going to be more difficult without Justin Verlander, but uh, I'll tell you, Hunter Brown looked awfully good in his limited time, and he's not going to step in and win a Cy Young award like Verlander. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, Verlander is not coming back to Houston. I think that the, the Astros, frankly, are probably the favorite at this point to get him back. But I also think that Judge is going back to New York, and I think DeGrom might go back to New York as well. So it's not until the the guys make that decision, cross that Rubicon, that um, you, you know you ever figure that they're actually going to. Uh, the Yankees need to make moves. They're, they are they are not good enough yet. Um, I, I think the Blue Jays need to make moves. I'll tell you who I really want to see have a good active offseason is the Baltimore Orioles. I think the Orioles have a chance to be good quick. Uh, Adley Rutschman is the second best catcher in baseball already. I think JT Real Muto is at the top of the mountain. I think Adley Rutschman's next best. Uh, Gunnar Henderson is going to be very good. I don't know if he ends up at third or shortstop, wherever it is, he's going to be a guy. And their system is loaded. And they have nobody long-term locked in at this point. So when you have that much talent, uh, you need to start complementing it with with free agents. And the Orioles are in a position to do that. Um, I think Cleveland needs to upgrade a catcher. Uh, the Mariners need another bat. Uh, they could really use one of the shortstops. I don't know if that's going to. I, th- I think Trey, t- Trey Turner fits in. Well, Trey Turner fits on any team, let's be honest. Yeah. But I think, you know what I think I'm gonna, you're going to see? And with all this shifting and now you're not going to be able to shift to the degree, you're still going to shift more than than in any, you know, than you could 15 years ago. I, I think you're they're going to play it right to the edge of that second base. Absolutely. Just a step inside. But I'll tell you what, shifting to the degree that they have, I'm not a shift fan. Uh, that being said, I don't think you should be able to tell me how I defense either. But I think you're going to see more of what a true shortstop brings to the game 
if you can't shift the way you can before, because when they change these rules and I'll get to the rules before I let you get out of here, but I took it personal as a second baseman. I thought, wow, you can't slide in anymore. You, you can't take the guy out. That, that was my bread and butter. That's how I separated myself from the average second baseman, you know, yeah. and now all of a sudden I got third baseman turning double plays when that used to be how you were graded in my generation. Now all of a sudden anybody can do it. Shortstop, is by far, and I, I crack up when people debate what's the toughest position. By far, is shortstop. You are tougher, more, than, tougher than tougher than catcher. I, I'm not going to say physically, skill okay. wise. Yes, skill yes. wise, nothing's no even close. No, yeah, not, you're, not, not nothing. You're close. Born, right. You're born a shortstop. You, you notice that pe- people don't get made made into shortstops. Nope. Everybody's made a third baseman. You know, made a left fielder because. You know, I used to tease my buddy, uh, Mike Cameron, all the time. He'd win a gold <laughs> glove and I'd say, Cammy, you know what you are, right? You're you're a, you're an infielder that wasn't good enough to stay. In the <laughs> now you're an outfielder. But, but it's, I like, it's like every every relief pitcher is a failed starter. You're right. Exactly. Well, it, and, and that's changing, too, because now these are these are uh, specialty roles. I mean, you're groomed to be the sixth, seventh inning guy. So the game is definitely changing in, in that respect. But uh, the, the shorts, I, I think the true shortstops, you're going to see them again when they get rid of that shift. So I think uh, I'd love to see. Well, you know, and, and in my mind, I always keep an eye on Aaron. Yep. And just for whatever reason, you know, the Mariners are kind of my team. That's where that's kind of where I hang my hat career wise. So I'm always looking out for them. And it was really exciting to see what they did this year. They finally since I've retired. For the first time this year, I could objectively watch them and say, this team's pretty good. That pitching staff top to bottom was really good. Most of them are all locked up. I agree with you. They need another bat. You get somebody like a Trey Turner, one of those big shortstop, plug them into the middle there with Crawford. Uh, man, that team's that team could be ready to win next year, I think. And and to to get on top of your point with the Orioles, it was really cool as a fan of baseball to see the Orioles kind of emerge this year and show some hope because it has been so dismal for so long. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, listen, there are teams, uh, almost every team could use improvements in some regard. I mean, the angels going out and making three moves, bringing in Tyler Anderson and Gio Urshela and trading for Hunter Renfro. They are improved. The Texas Rangers, after spending half a billion dollars on Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon last year, they need pitching and need it badly. The Mets, I mean, look at who the Mets potentially could lose this offseason. DeGrom, Brandon Nimmo, Chris Bassett. I mean, the Mets absolutely need to improve. Um, the, the Cardinals could use another bat. They really could use one of the shortstops and have Tommy Edmond over at second play in the gold glove defense. Uh, Help the Dodgers. Like, the Dodgers need a closer. I don't know if they're going to get one, but they could use one. Um there, there are teams all around baseball, and that's what makes free agency in, in the hot stove so exciting, that it's it's the reason why when people, you know, who may not know baseball as well will, you know, friends, whoever it is, will say to me, oh, so uh, you get a little bit of downtime? No, I do not. Actually, the offseason for me, for my purposes – is every bit as important, if not more important than the postseason, because the the offseason, it, it is full of hope. And isn't that all we're looking for as sports fans? 
we just want hope. We want hope that our team can be more than it is or more than it has been. And we hang our hat on that. And the off season is a time when maybe more than any, there's hope in the sport. Who are your biggest impact guys out there? Your, your handful of guys, they said they're, they're going to change uh, the dynamic, whatever team they land with. Uh, I, I think it's a pretty clear group. Uh, judges, Aaron, it judges, yeah. Yeah, Aaron Judge for me is one. Trey Turner for me is two. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have Xander Bogarts and Carlos Correa. I, it probably goes Correa than Bogarts. Um, and you, you can't discount Dansby Swanson. He was brilliant with the glove this year. Uh, on the pitching side, Jacob deGrom and Carlos Rodon and Justin Verlander. And, and to a lesser extent, I think guys like Brandon Nimmo and Kodai Sanga and, and Chris Bassett. You know, you could throw Wilson Contreras or Jose Abreu in there, but – the, the top two, it's a good free agent class for top tier guys. You, you don't see this many impact shortstops on the market at one time very often. And then to have a guy like Judge coming off one of the greatest seasons ever uh, and, and a guy like DeGrom, who, when he stays healthy, is the best pitcher in the world. Uh, to me, it's him and nobody else if he's healthy. Uh, there, there are going to be a lot of teams out there that really want him. And the question is, what's it going to cost? Overhyped guys. You see any guys out there that you're a little, I, I, like I would always say, I'd be careful with him. I know he's Um, a big guy. I know he has his numbers, but I, I I don't know. There's certain guys that just, like you said, it's reading the room that just, and I don't always have a good answer for you. It's like, why do you don't like him? I don't like him because I don't. And because because I've seen this before, I I like Brandon Nimmo. I don't think I would pay one hundred thirty plus million dollars for him. And I think that's probably what he's going to get. I like Wilson Contreras's bat a lot. Uh, I think the market's going to going to be a little rougher on him than than maybe his reputation uh, would would suggest, Uh, you know. Nathan Avaldi, it depends on the price. Uh, I'm fearful of guys who have had Tommy John surgery twice. That's just having, you know, written a book on the pitching arm and spent a lot of time looking into Tommy John and knowing the history of two-time TJ guys. I know he's been really good the last couple of years, so uh, maybe I'm I'm going out on a on a limb here, but uh, a long-term deal for for Avaldi would scare me. Bunch of rule changes coming up. Bigger bags, the shift. I don't like that. Man, that shift. They you're not allowed to be on the grass. That's bizarre nope. to me. I it's like I got to keep my spikes on the dirt. Yep. Uh, and the pitch clock. Just your three takes. Your take on those three. Bigger bases. I really don't care about. Honestly, the shift. I think will have some impact, but not very much. Uh, the pitch clock's going to change baseball. I, I, I like I almost want to end it there just with that very declarative statement. I think it's going to change baseball and it's going to be the best thing that's happened to the sport in generations. Uh, I don't know if you got to see any minor league baseball games this year, but let me tell you, man, uh, it's like ball when we were growing up. It's just such a quicker pace. And I understand people are going to focus and rightfully and understandably so on the time of game, which is probably going to, I estimate, go down 15 or so minutes. Um, It's not the time of the game that's being cut down. That's the big impact of this. It's that there's just going to be no more dicking around by pitchers on the mound or by batters in the box. And I think cutting out that time 
is going to make the game feel quicker and a quicker feeling baseball game. I, I say this watching a lot of like 14 U games over the past summer and, and appreciating that when the ball goes back to the pitcher, uh, the pitcher grabs it, he sets and he goes. And that's what baseball is to me. That's what baseball should aspire to be. And uh, I, I've been critical of Rob Manfred in a number of ways. Uh, I think he deserves all the credit in the world for convincing the right people that this was something that was necessary for the game. And there will be those out there. There will be fans who say baseball is the only game without a clock. How can you do this? Watch the game and tell me it's not better than it was back in 2022 and 21 and 20. And if you say that, I will call you a liar. (laughs) Um, It's going to be interesting too, that we get back to that cat and mouse thing. It's as the, how, what are the actual rules? I know it's 18 seconds, right? Is it 18 seconds and then it's different for for if there's a runner on versus yes. out of the stretch? Yeah, I believe can the, it, can the batter call timeout? Can the pitcher step off the rubber? What are the yep. consequences in both? So it's 15 second timer with bases empty and it's 20 seconds with a runner on um, the pitcher can throw over twice. If you throw over a third time and don't pick a guy off, then it's a balk. So, uh, you know, at the beginning, there are going to be some guys who have the ass about it and who are going to step off every at bat just to, like, make a point and kind of be dicks. And that's, you know, that's fine. There, there will be lots of overreaction to that just because that's how society is now. But in reality, everyone's going to adjust to this just like they adjusted not to taking out guys at second base, just like they adjusted not to taking out catchers. There are certain things in this job that you just have to understand are a reality and you can't fight them because your union agreed to the rules that allowed Major League Baseball to put this through. Like the, this was part of the collective bargaining agreement. It's frankly what got the collective bargaining agreement done. Baseball was in deep trouble if it did not get those rules uh, or the ability to pass rules in the hands of of owners and it was a big give by the players and they got financial rewards for it, whether it was the pre-arbitration bonus pool or higher competitive balance tax thresholds. But ultimately I think it was a great trade for the game because the game itself is going to be better for it. Very cool. Jeff Passon. I really appreciate you coming on, man. This was a lot of fun taking us and the fans of the Boone podcast behind the scenes a little bit. It was great catching up. Uh, All the best. Have a good time at those winter meetings. Get two hours sleep. Uh, I'll be at Pebble Beach playing golf. Uh, Well, fuck you (laughs) and thank you. I, uh, I. It's uh, it's it's great. Listen, it, it's always great talking baseball and talking it with someone who has lived the life that you had and had the career that you had and care about the game as much as you do makes it even better. Thank you, Jeff. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the boone 29 
I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.